0: have you here. So thanks for joining us. Let's open in prayer and then we'll get into our stories for tonight and then later get into our study of Acts. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for uh, this night. Thank you for bringing us safely here and uh, for your word that we get to study and also look at current events in the light of. And I just pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we do that to be encouraged and uh, strengthened and challenged even as the Spirit speaks to us uh, through his word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, we're gonna pick up a little bit of where we uh, were last week. If you were here last week, uh, we talked about peace in the Middle East and looked at some headlines having to do with that. We looked at three headlines, and then we looked at the scripture to understand, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? It seems to be the perennial news story Constantly in the news, constantly in the headlines. Uh, will will there be peace? Will these different peace agreements actually work out the way that uh, people are talking about? And of course, uh, last week we looked at some statements made uh, by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, at his address to the United Nations, and he was talking about this peace agreement that was being worked on and theoretically still is being worked on between israel and saudi arabia and his point was and the point of the article that we looked at last week was that if saudi arabia one of the largest arab nations in the region were to make a peace treaty with israel there would be several other smaller nations that would follow and so we looked at at some they, they were not named uh, six or seven other nations uh, ideally would would follow that as they're looking at Saudi Arabia as a major player in the Middle East and kind of following their lead. And so in his speech, Netanyahu talked about this. Did anybody go and watch the speech that's here? All right. I would still encourage you to go check it out. It's really not that long. It's available on YouTube. Um, make sure you look at the 2023 speech. It's very interesting. If this kind of thing interests you at all and current events and what's going on, uh, it's, it's an interesting he makes some very interesting statements. So uh, tonight's story is kind of a follow-up to that one. So the headline is, the two-state solution blocks the Saudi-Israel peace deal. And this is kind of an opinion piece. Um, It's quoting uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was the Secretary of State under President uh, Donald Trump. This gentleman was the one that worked with Trump and with these different nations in Israel to bring about the Abraham Accords. If you remember during Trump's presidency uh, where these smaller uh, Arab nations, United Arab Emirates, Morocco and Bahrain joined together to make a peace deal with Israel that is still, I believe, intact today. In fact, in his speech at the UN, Netanyahu, uh, mentions that and talks about it actually at length and the benefits to both Israel and these Arab nations and uses that as a jumping off point to say more more peace treaties need, need to come about. So I'm just going to read some from um, this article as Pompeo is interviewed um, by the Jerusalem Post. And basically... Uh, The article goes on to say, it could be impossible to establish a Saudi Arabia-Israel peace deal if a prerequisite is the Palestinians receiving or accepting a Palestinian state, according to former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Pompeo helped orchestrate the Abraham Accords under former U.S. President Donald Trump, which normalized relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and Bahrain, and he told the Jerusalem Post on Wednesday, and here's uh, Pompeo's quote, it is impossible to imagine a two-state solution with the current Palestinian leadership who is underwriting terrorism, taking money from Iran, paying citizens to kill Israelis. It is very difficult to imagine how one would strike a deal with the very leaders that have rejected every reasonable offer with which they have been presented. So this is goes back to some of the other um, headlines we've looked at when Israel's constantly under attack. It's coming from these different groups that are refusing to make peace and saying, we want to have a two-state deal, which really means you, Israel, need to evacuate some of the settlements that you've made, and we we get to claim this area as our own. We want to be your close neighbors even though we are trying to kill you. That's what's being um, presented. Pompeo spoke to the post the day after Saudi Arabia's first ambassador to the Palestinian Authority, Nayef al-Sadari, visited Ramallah. During his visit, al-Sadari emphasized that creating a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital would be a fundamental cornerstone in any prospective agreement with Israel. And, of course, Israel's saying, no way, we're not, we're not going to do that. Um, He goes on to talk about the Arab Peace Initiative and makes some statements about that. So this Arab Peace Initiative uh, with Saudi Arabia was initially ratified by the Arab League in 2002. It was reaffirmed in 2007 and 2017. So this has been an ongoing attempt on their part to try to make peace but really it's, it's just it's not something that Israel's gonna go for. Uh, it requires a complete withdrawal of Israel from the West Bank and the Golan Heights, establishing a Palestinian state with Eastern Jerusalem as its capital and a just settlement of the Palestinian refugee crisis. In speaking about normalization with Saudi Arabia at the United Nations General Assembly last week, which is the speech that I referenced earlier, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, we must not give the Palestinians a veto over new peace treaties with Arab states. The Palestinians could greatly benefit from a broader peace. They should be part of the process, but they should not have a veto over the process. And that's kind of what Saudi Arabia seems to be leaning toward, is, well, we've got to concede to the Palestinians and make this two-state agreement come in, into play, um, but Israel again is, is not going to go for that, which makes total sense. Would you want to have a border with a neighbor that was literally trying to kill you constantly? No. Um, but in an interview with uh, Fox News, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did not mention a Palestinian state but only said that, quote, the Palestinian issue is very important. We need to solve that part. We got to see where we go. We hope that we will reach a place that will ease the life of the Palestinians and get Israel as a player in the Middle East. So he's kind of, in a roundabout, very politically correct way, saying the same thing. We've got to appease the Palestinians. Netanyahu is saying, why are we letting them veto the amazing opportunity we have for peace in the Middle East? That's what's being said. Uh, Pompeo explained that the Abraham Accords advanced due to the Trump administration's acknowledgement of Israel as America's primary democratic ally in the region while identifying Iran as the leading state sponsor of terrorism and a significant threat to all other countries. When we isolate Iran, the region becomes more peaceful and prosperous, Pompeo said. So that's kind of what it comes down to is this tension with Iran and the Palestinians and Israel going, we could make a really great impact for peace in this whole region. But will Saudi Arabia be willing to side with Israel, so to speak, and make this agreement and and not require a two-state solution? Well, what does God think about a two-state solution? That's the question that we should be asking as Christians, as Bible believers. Uh, what does God have to say about it? Uh, we talked a little bit about Daniel 9 last week when we talked about will there ever be peace in the B- Middle East. And in verse 27, it's talking up here about the, the Antichrist, the prince of the people to come. Then he shall confirm a covenant, a peace treaty, with many, which is Daniel's word for Israel, for one week, which we know that's a period of how long? I'm hearing whispering, seven years, thank you. Um, And so it starts off as a seven-year peace treaty, and that's what it starts off as. However, uh, he will go on to break that covenant three and a half years later, which the verse goes on to say about the middle of the week. He's going to bring an end to it, basically. But while it stands for those first three and a half years, there's going to be this kind of peace, this security in uh, Israel. It's not a two-state solution, which is good in that sense, but it also is only temporary. It it will not last, and we've covered that quite a bit. So that's uh, one of the first mentions there of a covenant, a peace treaty in Israel. Will there be peace treaties? Yes, uh, but they will be broken. Let's go on to... Uh, continue to answer the question, what does God think about a two state solution? De- Deuteronomy 31 through 5. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. Okay? Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. And I'm gonna read the rest of the verses, but just keep in mind, this is a statement being made to national Israel, not to the church, not to Gentiles and Jews, strictly to God's chosen people, the Jews. Verse three, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will bring or will gather you. From there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed. All these peace treaties, that all have to do with the land. It's all about where's the boundaries and who controls what parts of it. it will, he will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. You Jews, you Israel, you shall possess the land. It's very clear. This is not a two-state solution here. You, singular, meaning the nation, with no other nations mixed in there, you will possess the land. He, God, will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So the land that God will give Israel right now is currently occupied and or controlled by Gentiles. Not all of it. Israel has its little strip of land. But much of it is either occupied or controlled by Gentiles. This will not remain according to these verses. While Israel, they've never had this land, and I'm going to show you in a moment the massive amount of land of the huge chunk of uh, the Middle East that God promised to Israel they've never actually had all of that land but it will be theirs and this is this passage in Deuteronomy is part of that promise it's a one-state solution it's God's solution uh, Genesis 15 is where God is speaking to Abraham and makes the Abrahamic covenant with him when you get down to verses 18 to 21 is where he talks about the land and he he outlines the borders of what he sees, what God sees as the land of the nation of Israel. Not the church, not a two-state issue, one state, Israel only. Verse 18 of Genesis 15, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land. And here's the boundaries from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And it's like, well, who are all these ites? Well, um, we can look at the rivers for two of them and know that all this land was once occupied by these people groups by these nations within the land and so this picture that red outline is the outline that we just saw in genesis fifteen eighteen to 21 notice on the left you have the red line starting up at the mediterranean up at the mouth of the nile or the delta of the nile goes down it follows it to a certain point the diagonal line goes up to the right to the Persian Gulf where it meets the Euphrates River. Follows that all the way up till it once again meets the Mediterranean. Look at all the other nations enveloped in this boundary. You've got Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, a huge chunk of Iraq, Syria, and I I know there's a few others in there. Lebanon is in there. Even up into Turkey at the north. Syria I said that already massive chunk of land this is the land that god promised uh israel have they ever had this land no they've never had it yet and god's promise is very clear it his promise is you're not going to share this land with anyone else this is jewish territory this is the covenant I made with Abram, with Abraham. Does God ever break his covenants? No. no. Is this then going to happen exactly as God stated? Yes. It is his word. It is undeniably true. It is a guarantee that this will happen. So what does God think about a two-state solution? Thumbs down. Not going to happen. All right. All right. Let's move from the international to something more domestic. As we look at the state here in the United States of the family and fatherhood in particular. So we want to go to a different um, headline which says, the decline of Christianity linked to collapse in marriage and fatherhood experts say. This is a uh, article out of the Washington stand uh, it was published September twenty sixth of this year so I'm going to read parts of this and we're going to look at some statistics and then look and see what God prescribed for the family when he designed it he was the architect of the family after all he's the designer and so it's designed with a purpose we're going to look at some of that The article says the pew research center shared survey results earlier this month on the structure of the modern american family the report stated the american family has undergone significant change in recent decades there was no longer one predominant family form and americans are experiencing family life in increasingly diverse ways experts say this familial breakdown is connected to the breakdown of christianity in the US. And they they go on to give a statistic here. And we're going to look at some family statistics. I have a second article that specifically deals with um, the the statistics related to fathers and the importance of fathers in the home. Okay. So in 1970, uh, the home of a married mom and dad with children all living together was about 67%. It's what we're calling the nuclear family, God's plan. Dad, mom, children living together. It's not about whether they're Christians or not, okay? It's just simply the traditional biblical family structure, 67%, according to this study, back in 1970. So now, in 2023, that number has drastically been reduced only 37% of families are considered the uh, typical, traditional, biblical, nuclear uh, families. I want to read a few more things out of here. John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, contended at the end of the report that due to the loosened sexual morals through the intensifying sexual revolution, marriage and family are treated as if they are social constructs that can be rethought in light of ever-evolving social conditions. Is the family just a social construct? Or was it designed by God on purpose for a purpose? The latter, right? We have a God that created the family before he created any other entity, any other group. He created first the family right there in the garden. It was his design. It was his idea. He goes on to say, by way of analogy, he compared a speed limit to gravity. A speed limit is real in the sense that it exists over a particular stretch of highway but it is not real in the same sense as gravity is real. The speed limit may be changed or ignored accordingly. As he put it, gravity is not a social construct, but rather a baked into reality, and marriage is no different. In light of scripture, Stone Street emphasized marriage as a foundational reality. He wrote that marital roles, the nature of family enterprise, and educational options may have changed, but the essential form of marriage and the relationships that compromise families have not. I'll jump to the end of the article. The report concluded the structure of marriage and family is built into the fabric of reality. To disregard it is to court destruction, in this case, the destruction of faith. So the decline of Christianity is that happening in America, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I want to go on to another article. I don't have the headline up there. It's titled, The Stats on Faith and Fatherhood, um, published by the Philadelphia Tribune. The author, Jack Brewer, publishes April 2, 2023. Okay. The number of religious Americans and families with a father in the home is on rapid decline. Without Christ, we will not see these trends uh, reserved. Only about 65% of American adults identify as Christian today, according to Pew Research. This number is down 12 percentage points over the last decade. Now I want to jump down to what I've got on the screen here, where it talks about um, fatherhood and families. America's decline in faith has largely mirrored a decline in fatherhood. It's it's just interesting how these different uh, statistics seem to mirror one another, almost. Uh, He also gives a statistic from about the same era, this time 1960. In 1960, only about 9% of American children grew up without a father in the home. Now, this isn't talking about... um, like a situation where there's a separation or divorce, and kids live with mom part of the time and dad part of the time. I, I mean, I did. They didn't show the, uh, the study and all of the the data points and questions in in the in the survey, but I know the divorce rate is higher and has been so, um, and we'll see that in the current statistic. But I believe this is talking about families where dad is gone. There is no dad in the picture at all, whether he's living in the same home or living in a different home, no father, totally absentee. 1960, only 9%. Today, that number is around 25%, which again, the divorce rate is much higher than 25%. So um, I believe, again, this is referring to situations where children are growing up, zero father, zero father uh, in the home or in their lives at all. Now, I look at that number, and 25%, it's not a good number. But they go on to say that percentage, 25%, represents 18.4 million children absent a father in the home. This is in America. This is not a worldwide statistic. Only in America is this true. They go on to say that this is over three times the world average and the highest rate of children living in single-parent households of any country in the entire world, right here at home in America. Not the uh, statistic we'd like to see. We don't want to see America first in this statistic, but here we sit. Um, The statistics also tell us that fatherlessness is a heavy indicator with a wide range of adverse outcomes for a child's future. I want to pause for a moment here. Remember, this is statistical data. It is not set in stone that every child growing up in an absentee father home is going to end up like what I'm about to show you. I grew up in an absentee father home. By God's grace, I'm able to sit up here and and talk with you about it tonight. So. The odds are against that situation, but it is not a hard and fast rule that anyone that grows up fatherless home, some of you might be, you know, have grown up that way, or your kids are maybe growing up that way. Um, so this isn't meant to say that this is how it has to be, okay? This is only statistical data that's coming in. But it does speak volumes, um, as you'll see. Fatherless homes produce... <laughs> 90% of all homeless runaway kids are from fatherless homes. 90% of behavioral disorders uh, with kids, and I think it's, I think it's 18 and under. They, again, they didn't give all the parameters of ages. We're saying children here. 90% um, behavioral disorder affected kids come out of fatherless homes. Um, of all suicides of teens, this is specifically teenagers, I should have put that up there, sorry, um, are from fatherless homes. And then another statistic, 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come out of fatherless homes. So did God know what he was doing when he created a mother and a father and said this is what a family needs to be? Yes. Are these statistics set in stone that everyone that grows up has to be a homeless, behavioral, suicidal, living in institution? No. No, we still have a God up on the throne. We're going to look at some verses about that. So this, doesn't mean, this isn't meant to like discourage us or discourage you if your family is in this situation. It's just simply what's going on in our country. Uh, if these trends continue... Our country's very future could be in jeopardy. Yeah, no kidding. Faith and family are two of the most sacred values in our society. As they both decline, we expect many other issues to follow. Rising crime and drug use, failing education systems, so much more will only continue to proliferate as America's faith declines and family formation disintegrates. It's so important that we continue to be vigil in sharing the gospel, because Jesus transforms these percentage. You bring Jesus into these percentage, everything changes. The transformational power of the gospel overrides the statistics. That's what we need to keep in mind as we look at these, because they are kind of disturbing, disheartening, um, depressing a little bit, maybe. Keep that in mind. The gospel changes everything. So let's look at um, some scripture now, getting away from all that. First of all, this has been a key verse or verses that we've been looking at. Um, but know this, that in the last days, that's where we are. Since the since the ascension of Christ till now, it's the last days. They're, they've been, they're like, that's, those are long days. Yeah, about 2,000 years worth of them. But this is where we're living today. Perilous times will come. Notice, for men, and it is talking about mankind, like men and women, but... I just want to focus on that. We just talked about the absentee fathers. For men will be lovers of themselves, not lovers of their families, lovers of themselves. And we just saw the statistics that prove this, this verse out. Lovers of money more than their family. Boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to their parents. So they grew up disobeying and and. Perhaps didn't have the role model and the discipline needed, and so now they, they've begun to father children, and there's so much brokenness, and without the light of the gospel, without the light of God's word guiding their path, the cycle just keeps repeating itself. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unloving, an unloving father is so destructive. Unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal. Think of that in the, in the light of a, a fatherhood, a father that's brutal. Maybe some of you grew up with a brutal father. Um, it's, it happens. Despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, having a form of godliness, having perhaps some religious activity in their life or some kind of other set of rules that they seem to be following, but they deny its power. They deny it. They deny the power of the word. From and from such people turn away. Paul tells Timothy, his young son in the faith, this young pastor as Paul's writing really his second Timothy is his farewell address and he says turn away don't go by them this is how it's going to be and it's just going to keep getting worse and worse as time goes on let's look at how god designed the family genesis 1:26 god said let us make man meaning again mankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, to Adam and Eve, here's the creation of the family we referenced earlier. God bringing them together. The first institution that God ever made was the family, and we're watching it unfold right here. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They were supposed to learn about it, understand it, tend it, be stewards of this planet. That's how what God created them. That's why he placed them here to have fellowship with him, and then he created this whole world. And He said, you guys go, and you tend it, and you watch over it, and you steward it. The creation of Eve, we won't take the time to read through all these verses, but in 22 there, he brought her, right at the bottom of the screen, he, God, brought her Eve to the man, performing that first wedding there in the garden. Before sin ever ruined anything it's pure and perfect and sinless and innocent and he brings them them together and says i have this plan for you and i want you to follow it and of course adam goes on uh to praise the lord and they have this wonderful open relationship together and there's no shame there's no shame and we can't hardly even imagine what that must have been like uh, because Even a Christian marriage is two broken sinners trying to be together and to love each other. And uh, we have that sin nature that we're fighting against. I mentioned earlier that the statistics that we looked at are only statistics. They are not set in stone. And because we still have a God and he's still on his throne, the one that created the family, designed it, the architect of the family is still in charge. Amen okay so, what do we do when we find ourselves in those situations where there is an absentee father? how do we, how do we wrestle with that? We see these terrible statistics. oh, everything's going to be bad. We still have a God on the throne in Psalm 10 verse 14 it says, "But you have seen God. this is a prayer you." observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the what? Fatherless. The children that are growing up, that 18.4 million, is that our number? Children growing up have a very special place in the heart of God. And he, of course, works through his church. We're his hands and feet to love these children. But he is the helper of the fatherless. In Psalm 68, 4 through 6, these verses were so meaningful to me. I remember someone sharing them with me as a child. And I just clung to these, being in that situation. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides in the clouds, by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Verse 5 A father of the fatherless. Before he was a helper, and now we see he's also a father of the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. He sets the solitary in families. He's still the architect of the family. He's still putting our families together. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dry. Uh, dwell in a dry land fatherhood and family is so important to god and when we do it his way he does amazing things he does amazing things through the family all right let's get into our study of acts i'm i'm apologizing there's still no handout for tonight like there was uh, last there wasn't one last week either so sorry about that didn't quite get there Uh, But we are in Acts 22, so if you want to open up your Bibles, yeah, yeah, they're not always there, but sometimes, maybe um, Pastor Rich will have one next week, so, (laughs) yeah, give Nathaniel a break from having to hand them out, but we're in Acts chapter 22, and this is our, I think our third week, maybe more, Um, and we've been talking about the issue of baptism, does baptism regenerate? This is our third week at least talking about that specific topic. So we're going to dig into it. A little bit of review. Um, if you remember Paul, he's been almost killed by the mob. The The Romans go, go down and and free him from their clutches, and he gets up on the steps, and he he's speaking to them. And so what follows several verses, many verses, is Paul's speech to his jewish brethren that were just trying to kill him a few minutes before and he's calling out to them because he loves them his compassion on these men yes he understands they want to kill him he's like i get where you guys are i was right there with you and he mentions that in his his speech i think it's more of a sermon really to them and and he's crying out to them helping trying to help them understand so um verse 2 ends with, then he said, and verse 3 starts, and he begins to speak. And we've looked at a lot of those verses. But we got to verse 16, um, and this is where the controversy, supposed controversy, it's not once you look at it um, properly, it says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so the question was, does baptism save you from hell? And is this verse a proof text for baptismal regeneration. Some would say it is. And we went, Pastor Rich went in depth on this. I reviewed it in depth, but we talked about um, these verses and we we looked at this um, translation. A Greek scholar kind of put things kind of in order for us grammatically. Having arisen, having arisen, you've already believed now, it's not supposed to be he baptized, it's supposed to be a B. Be baptized and wash away your sins, having previously called upon his name. And we looked at the grammatical um, context of this. The aorist participle means that that calling on the name of the Lord happened before, um, before the baptismal section. The, the command to be baptized, the calling actually points back into the past it precedes and acts an act so in the context of acts 22:16 the calling precedes the baptism and i won't read all this for time's sake but it's that aorist participle which is why it's so important as we read the word and understand it to sometimes we need to dig deeper into the text and grasp the context we look at original language and we look at the grammatical parts of that And in this case, this is a prime example of why that's so important to get it right as we study the word and try to interpret it. And so we look back at Acts 2, um, a a similar wording structure there. Repent, let every every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of, on account of, and the word in, in our Bibles is usually for, for the remission, but that word for doesn't mean like what we would normally it mean in our common uh, conversational English. It really means pointing back to the belief. Because you've believed, because your sins have been remitted, be baptized. And that's always the order. All right, I'm going to skip ahead. We jumped into Hebrews 9:11 through 10:18, and we made it up to verse nine of chapter 10 last week. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's laying out this, I want to say complex, but once we walked through the verses, I think it was very clear. Over and over and over again, the writer of Hebrews is helping the, his audience, and remember, the original audience of the, the book of Hebrews were Christians. They were Jewish Christians, though. They were Jewish Christians that were coming under intense persecution because they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and they were trusting in him. And they had realized that the law was no longer needed, uh, the ceremonial laws and the dietary and all of that. And they had moved away from that because they realized the power of the grace of God. And because they had moved away, they were experiencing persecution. And so in their dismay and their discouragement from being persecuted, they were considering going back to the law. And the writer of Hebrews comes in with, with big flashing lights and says, don't do it because you have something that's so much better than the law, better than the angels, better than the altar, better than the tabernacle, better than the temp- temple. It's Jesus. He fulfilled all of that. And he goes, the author goes to great lengths to help them understand that and so we walked through the uh, chapter um, 9 verse 11 and we got into chapter 10 verse number 9 and i'll point this out i think i mentioned it at the end last week as we walk through this passage did we come across a specific reference to baptism i'll save you the time no we didn't and that's the point That's the point. Like we're talking about baptism and now you're in a passage that talks nothing about baptism. Exactly. Because we're talking about how one understands and believes and gains eternal life. It's through Jesus alone. He's better than all of those ceremonial washings and all of the blood of the bulls and the goats and the lambs and all of that. He's better than all of it. And so we don't even see baptism mentioned. Why? Because that's the point. It doesn't need to be because we're not in the context of baptism. We're in the context of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, okay? And so it's kind of taking away that argument as we go through. So let's jump back in, and there's the slide we ended on last week, Verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is Jesus saying this. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And the first here is the first covenant, which was what? The Jewish covenant, which was The the law. Thank you. The law. He takes it away. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it perfectly. And he is establishing the second covenant, the new covenant in his blood, not the blood of animals anymore, but his, the new covenant with his blood. So let's get into verse number 10. So we're in Hebrews 9. I had you open to Acts 22, but actually um, we're in Hebrews 9. So if you, it, they'll be on the screen, but if you want to follow along in your Bible as well. So Hebrews 9, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10 verse number 10, Hebrews 10, verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified. I'm gonna come back to that. Notice that's a past tense, sanctified. That's really important. By that will, by the will of Christ, by making that new covenant, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, no mention of baptism here. If baptism were part of salvation, Why isn't it in this passage? If it's so necessary for regeneration, it should be listed right here. I know that's an argument from silence. It's a very loud silence. If baptism's part of it, this this author of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit that inspired him left something out. They forgot something, which we know is not possible. So it's once and for all. One time for all sin. Verse 11, and every priest, now we're talking again about the, um, the human priest, and he kind of goes back and forth between Christ and, and the law. Every priest stands ministering daily. In other words, constantly. There was an offering of a lamb in the morning and at night, every single day, in addition to all the others. And then when you got to the feast days and the holy days, there was way more offered. Thousands and thousands and thousands of animals slaughtered, okay? He stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And remember, when the priest would come in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, what would he have to do before he could do any of his work? He would have to get that water and ceremonially wash his hands and his feet And we looked at those passages, Numbers, Leviticus, I don't remember. We were were in the Pentateuch somewhere where it talks about that. He would have to wash his feet and his hands. Verse 12, but this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, once and for all, he just keeps repeating himself, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. The sacrifice of Christ was enough. We don't add anything to it. We don't add baptism. We don't add communion. We don't add church membership. We don't add any other religious activity. Jesus the sacrifice of Christ was enough and it was eternally enough, forever. So again, if baptism or anything else was part of this process, it should be listed here. This author is going to great lengths to help the Jews not turn back to the law. Okay? To explain salvation through Christ. And he gives, the again, the contrast, the priest and Jesus. The sacrifices and Jesus. The blood of the animals, the blood of Jesus. and Baptism is not even hinted at. And then Jesus sat down. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He sat down because his work was finished. It's a mirror, I think, when we look at Genesis on the seventh day. What did God do? rested not because he was tired god never gets tired he rested because it was finished the work was complete the plan the mission everything was done exactly how he planned it and that was his rest and jesus sat down why because his work was finished if jesus sat down and his work is finished Why do I think that I have to perform all these religious activities in order to be connected to God? The logic is there. The the truth is there. Now, I want to go back to verse number 10. We have this word I bolded there, sanctified. We have been sanctified. Normally, when we've talked about sanctification, what tense do we normally think of in past, present, or future? You guys are quiet tonight. Yeah, present. We call it progressive sanctification. It's the process by which the Holy Spirit works in us. He uses his word, and he is transforming us. Now, we play a role in that. Our role is simply to submit to him, okay? Um, but he works in us to help us grow stronger in our faith. And the more we obey and submit to him, the stronger we become. The more we're in the word, we're strengthened. It's progressive sanctification. It's present tense. But the word sanctified, just like the word salvation, has three tenses. It has a past tense, it has a present tense, and it has a future tense. In this verse, it's the past tense of sanctification. We have been sanctified. And there's a couple ways to understand it. One is that it is a positional sanctification. Just like we have a positional Um, salvation before God. We are positionally righteous because Christ's righteousness is applied to us. And that's kind of what this is saying. We're positionally set apart, which is the literal meaning of the word sanctified, is set apart. So we're positionally set apart in the past, and when did that happen? When we placed our faith in Christ. At that moment, a lot of things happen. One of those things is that we are, Set aside. We're set apart. And God sees us as if we've never sinned at all because of Christ's righteousness. That's our position. Ephesians says we're already seated up in the heavenlies. That's how God sees us. And so that's what this is referencing. We have been sanctified past tense. Uh, We're going to look at another verse where sanctified is used in another tense. That's why I wanted to bring it out. Verse 14, for by one offering, one offering, not Jesus' offering plus baptism, not Jesus' offering plus anything else, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, present tense. So we have these passages back to back, only four verses apart were sanctified in the past, And we are being sanctified, which we just talked about. But notice, he has perfected forever. That's also kind of a nod back to his have been sanctified. He has perfected forever, positionally, those of us that believe in Christ who are in the process of being sanctified. If you've placed your trust in Christ, you are being sanctified. Some are sanctified at different rates than others based on their willingness to submit, based on their willingness to obey. And so you have some Christians, they've been saved for a length of time, but spiritually very immature in their faith because they've they've not grown. They're at a they're God's still working in them. They're gonna go to heaven someday. They have eternal life, they have eternal security, but they're immature in their faith. Paul addresses immature Christians throughout his letters. John addresses immature Christians in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Those letters to some of those churches are to immature Christians. Paul tells, the like, for example, the church at Corinth is a good example. That was a messed up church. They had a lot of bad stuff going on there. Really sinful stuff. And Paul addressed, not un, uh, as unbelievers, but as believers that had not been as far along sanctified as they should have been by then. Uh, even the writer of Hebrews at one time talks about uh, those that should have had meat, but they've been given the milk. They, they should have had the weightier things, but, but they're still in, in the basics, if you will, the, the basics of the Christian life. So we have been positionally perfected forever. I love the eternality of this so powerful verse 15 but the holy spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days says the lord i will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds i will write them then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more now here's another key verse verse 18 Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. There's no longer a baptism needed for sin. There's no longer communion needed. There's no longer good works needed. There's no more offering. In fact, Jesus satisfied the Father completely. He is our propitiation, which is a Bible word that means satisfaction. The Father is fully satisfied in Christ. So we're down here, some, some and I say we loosely, humanity is down here in different religions and different belief systems, and they're trying really hard to satisfy the Father. I, I'm just going to do my best, and, and uh, I'm going I'm to try to achieve this, this the loftiness of religious perfection, and I'm going to do all these good things. I'm going to say all these prayers and do all these things and all these rituals, and God's going to be pleased with me. And because and oh, they, they're, they're such a good person. Surely God will let them go to heaven. And they're working so hard, and God said, but I'm already satisfied. The needle is already at 100% satisfied, and it's not going to move. Nothing you do is going to move that needle back down so it can come back up again. It's already there, and it's set there for eternity. Jesus put it there when he did his work on the cross. That's why he said on the cross, it is what? Finished. finished. It's done. It's complete. Mission accomplished. Let's go to John chapter 1. We'll leave the writer of Hebrews now and go into John. So we're, we're really jumping back in time now from the finished work of Christ to um, the early part of John's gospel and really the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry here. And we're doing this again in the context of baptism, okay? So the gospel of John, John the Baptist or baptizer or whatever you want to call him, uh, ministry is going on. He's making here, he's going to make a distinction between two different kinds of baptism. This is so important. If you're talking with those that Um, follow a baptismal regeneration uh, belief system or maybe somebody here does or somebody watching does Um, and we want to be clear about that this this isn't being said to put anyone down or to attack anyone or any anything like that it's simply what does the bible say and that's what we look at so this is this might be a key text because you could if you had the time to go through all the hebrews some of those verses could could be pulled out and say look there's no more offering. But that Hebrews passage, is, it's, it's better to, to see it all at once. And if you have the time to go through that with someone and they're willing to listen, that's a great, very rich, theologically rich passage. But these um, sections out of the Gospels um, are a little shorter and a little bit more direct about these different kinds of baptism because a lot of the confusion comes when someone reads a word, just like we talked about with sanctification, having these different tenses, just like we talked about with the, uh, the wording of our verse in Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, um, the grammatical tense of things and how that totally changes it from how we normally would read it in English. The same thing with the word baptism. People see the word baptism, what do they think of? They think of water, physical H2O. But is that always what baptism means in the Bible? No, doesn't. John 1, 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me for he was before me. I did not know him, but he, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So you get a little inside scoop on John the Baptist's ministry here and how God was speaking to John about who to look for. And I believe the father may have told John, look for the one that the dove descends on because he talks about that happening and him seeing that. So he didn't know who it was going to be. He was looking for him, though. And meanwhile, he's baptizing with water. That's key, with water. So John is is baptizing Jews, why? Because they'd already believed in Jesus? No. Nobody even really knew Jesus yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. This is not believer's baptism. This is the baptism of John the Baptist, completely different. And that's another reason why we have to look at context. When we see the word baptism, what kind of baptism are we talking about? So John is here gonna make distinction between baptizing with water and the kind of baptism that the Messiah is going to perform. It's going to be different. It's not going to be water baptism. Verse 32, And John bore witness, saying, and here it is. This was his sign. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Speaking of Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with what? Water said to me upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him this is he who baptizes with the holy spirit oh this is totally different you were talking about baptizing with water now you're talking about a totally different kind of baptism it's a baptism with the holy spirit and i have seen and testified that this is the son of god So, John's going through the process, and he baptized probably thousands, and his disciples were baptizing people there in the Jordan River. It says all Jerusalem flocked to him. Huge crowds, long lines of people waiting to get baptized. This was a huge event. And he's baptizing each one and baptizing each one. He doesn't know who the Messiah is going to be. Finally, this man comes to him, and he's like, wait a minute, something's different here. I don't think I'm supposed to baptize you. You're supposed to baptize me. Jesus says, no, and we're getting into that passage. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is completely different than the water baptism of John the Baptist and completely different than the water baptism that we perform here behind me, believer's baptism. John performed this water baptism of repentance for the Jews to return to the Lord and His Word. Leave behind your false Judaism. Get back to the true God that you say that you believe in and His Word, His Torah. That was John's baptism. But Jesus baptizes us the moment that we believe on Him in the Spirit. The Spirit seems to, according to the Scripture, proceed from the Son, just like the Son proceeds from the Father. Yes, that's one God, but these three unique persons, they co-equal in every regard, equal as God, three persons, but one God, and they have this arrangement that they as the Godhead, the Trinity made. The Son's going to proceed from the Father. The Spirit's going to proceed uh, from the Son. And so when we believe that, We are sanctified, we're set apart, and we're also baptized into the Holy Spirit. So our baptism, according to this verse, with the Holy Spirit is conducted by Jesus himself, which is a pretty cool thought. Over in Matthew 3 is a parallel passage talking again about John the Baptist. So Jesus comes to John, he's been baptized. So when it says, when he had been baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So both John and Jesus saw this happening and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus went through the waters of baptism. Did he need to repent of his sin like all the other Jews did? No. Jesus being God was sinless. He wasn't Uh, getting baptized to wash his sins away, like many see baptism today. He wasn't being baptized to be regenerated. He was doing it as an act of obedience to the Father and to inaugurate his ministry. He was also doing it as an example to all the other Jews around for that particular baptism. And I would argue he was also doing it for us as believers to look back on and see that and realize if Jesus felt the need to obey the Father by getting baptized, then me as a 21st century believer should think about that if I haven't done that before. I think that's the example. He was leaving us an example of obedience and he's also helping us to see what baptism isn't. It's not about washing our sins away with water. It's about an act of obedience after we have believed. There's another confusion that comes with the word saved, and we mentioned this earlier. Just like sanctified has different tenses, salvation has three different tenses, but sometimes the word saved doesn't mean saved from going to hell in the Bible. So again, context is so key. First Peter 3, uh, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So there's a ton of stuff in there we won't unpack. Verse 20, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were what saved or delivered through water does this mean that noah baptized his family and they baptized him because there was eight of them somebody had to do it, dunk him so that they were saved through the waters of baptism what water are we talking about here the flood and how were they saved? By being in the what? The ark. Which is, of course, a beautiful picture of Christ. Christ is our ark. And we are called by God just like all the people were called. And there's strong evidence there was a lot of empty space on that ark. It wasn't all filled up with animals. If you, How many have been down to the ark encounter? All right, good number. If you haven't been, go down. It's It's really interesting. And a lot of it is... Um, The size of it is just amazing, and that's built right to scale, just like the dimensions given in Scripture. So you're seeing what Noah would have seen, or something very, very similar. And and as you walk through the decks, you see how they may have care for the animals, but there's also a lot of space, and of course they didn't maybe have every single animal, but there's different displays in there, and um, plaques and things that help explain God intended for a lot more than eight souls to be saved on this ark. He obviously knew that that wouldn't be the case, but he opened the door for anyone that would come to be saved, just like he opens the door of salvation through Christ today. But when we get to this verse 20, to save through water, it's really just talking about physical salvation. Their lives were physically spared because they were on the ark. Verse 21, there is also an antitype, which now saves us. Baptism, now we, again, we have to be careful. What kind of baptism are we talking about? Notice the bracketed words, not part of the, the text, but they help us understand. Baptism, brackets, placed into Christ, which is our ark, not the removal of filth of the flesh. Now we're back in the text again, even though it's, Parenthesize, Peter made a parenthetical statement here. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not the ceremonial washing, not the baptism in physical water now, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, having been made, made subject to him. So again, the ark foreshadowed christ saving us when when we get baptized in physical water no when we turn to him in faith and trust in him for our salvation not the removal of the filth of the flesh is a key phrase it's not about the physical washing of the body or the dunking or the pouring or the sprinkling it's about faith in christ so just like the author of hebrews Peter here is pointing out that it is the work and resurrection of Jesus that saves us, not a ceremonial washing or baptism. Acts 18 um, also talked, and when we went through this, if you'll remember several weeks ago, we went through Acts 18. I think it maybe he was teaching this one. It's the, um, the account of Apollos. This uh, Jewish man, he had an amazing ability an eloquent speech and just could really turn a phrase. I mean, people just hung on his every word. Um, He comes to Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was a believer, fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he had one, one missing part of his theology. He knew only the baptism of John. Going all the way back to that, jewish only context that prepared the people in a sense of repentance from their form of judaism they were living in and not where they should be he only knew that baptism so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when aquila and priscilla heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of god more accurately so they said hey man you're doing great up there come on over to our home maybe or wherever they were and let's get a cup of coffee let's sit down and talk about this we want to help you understand you're you're, you're doing really good but you're missing this help, Let let us teach you and he had the teachable spirit to do that this loving couple basically this is a picture of discipleship they bring him aside and explain that to him so then when he desired to cross to Achaia, so he's in Ephesus, he goes across um the water to modern day greece Achaia to the brethren. The brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples there, here's a letter, take it. You guys receive him. So when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And that was his mission. That was his ministry. In verse 19, um, Apollos is over in Corinth. That's what we just talked about. Paul comes down through Ephesus, and as he's traveling, he finds Other disciples who, just like Apollos, believed they had not received the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is transitional, so God worked things a little bit differently. But they were believers. He said to them, "Into what then were you baptized? And again, into John's baptism. So Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people, the Jews, that they should believe on him who would come after him that is on Christ Jesus. He's the real Messiah. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which of course was a believer's baptism. It was a submersive baptism the way that we practice here. So another correction about confusion about baptism. Hey, confusion about baptism has been going on for like 2,000 years. So it goes on today. It went on in the early church. And you see time after time, God's People, Aquila and Priscilla, now Paul and others, correcting wrong beliefs, erroneous beliefs about um, baptism. And we've looked at this verse as well in verse uh, 20, actually 38 of Acts chapter 2. Remember, again, this is about the, uh, the the order of the wording and the grammar of it. Peter said to them, "Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus." In our Bibles, usually it's for the remission of sins. So again, this is another key text that baptismal regeneration believers uh, or those that believe in baptismal regeneration go to and say, look, baptize for the remission. But the word actually is because of, because you've believed, you need to be baptized. It's a call for believers to take that step of obedience. All right, we're almost done for tonight. In Acts 2.41, it gives the order, and it's really clear here. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. So what happened first? They received the word. They believed. And after they believed, then they were baptized, which is the exact chronology that we hold to today. No one is baptized unless they first believed. And And then it becomes... A joyous occasion, because they're saying to the world and to everyone, "I'm a believer in Christ, and I want everyone around to know." And I'm going to be baptized in front of my church, in front of friends and family and loved ones, to show everyone as a testimony, an outward expression of what God has done uh, in my heart. And so we get back to our verse now, Acts twenty two sixteen, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's our word, calling again, which we've looked at for the last, now, three weeks, which points back to them believing. Is this a proof text for baptismal generation? Absolutely not. So that was a long excursion that we took, three weeks spending on this, but it's important. It's important that we do this. We sometimes can get confused We talk with people, coworkers, family members, friends, neighbors that hold to baptismal regeneration, and they will go to these texts. They'll go to these verses. And so I'm I'm glad that we spent the time because it's such such an important thing. And today, just like I said before, there's just as much confusion about baptism as it relates to salvation today as there was when Paul was walking around on the earth. And so we need to be ready, what? To give an account of the hope that lies within us. We need to be ready to have an answer. Well, Why do you believe that? Why do you believe like you do? Why don't you believe in baptismal regeneration? Well, actually, we just talked about that at church, and can I show you from the Bible why we don't believe that and take them to these verses? So we're equipped by God's word to do that. All right, our time is out, so I'm just gonna pray, and um, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I, I thank you, Lord, so much for the the great length that you went to to make it so clear that our our, uh, salvation comes through Christ alone. I thank you that you inspired the writer of Hebrews to go into such detail and repetitiveness to explain over and over and over again that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. And we read those verses, Lord, in Hebrews that went to great detail to explain that. We're so thankful for that. Be with us, Lord, as we go out this week. We might have conversations about this issue, Lord. It is, it's a big issue, and, and people feel very strongly, Lord, about this issue. Please give us grace if we come into those conversations. Please bring these verses to our memory. Lord, help us to be loving as we speak the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.